There's crispy, and then there's crispy, er. Try our new and improved Tyson crispy chicken strips. Crispy just got crispy, er. Welcome to HBCU Four Sixty Eight, brought to you by ESPN's The Undefeated. This weekly podcast looks at life inside and outside of sports from the unique perspective of the Roden Fellows, handpicked students from six historically black colleges and universities. They're young, they're smart, and they are living one of the most unique experiences in American higher education. I'm Bill Roden, and here are this week's Roden Fellows. I'm Donovan Dooley from North Carolina A&T State University in Greensboro, North Carolina. I'm Ania Shabazz from Grambling State University in Grambling, Louisiana. Hello, everyone. I'm coming to you from sunny South Carolina. Uh, the fellows and I have another great show for you today, including special guest host, the great Justin Tinsley. Uh, in addition to being a culture and sports writer for The Undefeated, Justin is also one of the hosts of the podcast, The Plug, which you can find on the ESPN app. Thanks for joining us, Justin. Hey, thank you guys for bringing me back on, man. It's always a pleasure to be here. The NFL draft is just around the corner, so we'll talk to North Carolina A&T tackle and draft hopeful Brandon Parker about his college football career and where he wants to go next. We're catching him outside, so if there's some wind or children playing, well, that's why. Uh, later on, senior writer for The Undefeated, Michael Fletcher, will join us to talk about golf and why it's been hard for blacks to get into the sport. Now, spoiler alert, it's not Tiger's fault. Uh, but first, let's take a look at some of the major sports to keep your eye on. Oh, well, for me, I think it's going to be the NBA playoff, um, as we've seen the, um, the standings and the NBA playoff matchups are already out. And I think what we're going to be talking about next week is this has to potentially be one of the most intriguing first rounds that we've had in a long time. I think there are a lot of teams both in the West and in the Eastern Conference that are pretty similar to each other and match up pretty well against each other. It has to potentially create a whole lot of upsets. So I'm going to be looking forward to watching this first round of the playoffs. Well, I definitely agree with Donovan. We're definitely going to be talking about the playoffs. Um, but in other news, as far as the NFL goes, uh, 49ers linebacker Ruben Foster was charged with three felonies. One was domestic violence, and it's just a lot. So I definitely think we'll be talking about that. Hmm. Brother Tinsley, what do you think, what do you think we're going to be chasing uh, this time next week? We're going to be talking about the NFL, definitely. Uh, the draft will be a week away at that point, so everybody's going to be trying to figure out who's moving up, who's moving down, who's going where. And, of course, I think we're going to also be talking about Colin Kaepernick again because the Seattle Seahawks postponed their workout with quarterback after he refused to say that he won't be sitting well kneeling for the national anthem next season. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. I think that um, we're going to also be talking about the NFL for another next, but who's going to sign Eric Reed? Eric Reed is, is a safety who also knelt beside Colin Kaepernick. And, of course, he's a free agent. And same thing, hasn't been signed. At some point, something's got to give. You know, over 100 players have officially declared for the NFL draft, which is going to take place at the end of the month in Dallas. We've got one of the players with us today, uh, Brandon Parker. 
uh, just finished his last season as offensive lineman for North Carolina A&T. And earlier this year, he helped his team become MEAC and Celebration Bowl champions. And in May, he's going to graduate from A&T with a degree in electrical engineering and a fiancé who, wow, who he proposed to during the game this year. Wow, Brandon, that's a lot, man. <laughs> uh, but by, by, by then, we're gonna, we'll, we'll know uh, if and when he'll be headed uh, to the NFL. Not really if, is is when. Hey, welcome to the show, Brandon, and congratulations on everything. Yes, sir. Thank you for having me. I appreciate you know, me uh, being the special guest in your podcast today. Oh, absolutely, man. Any brother who, who, who proposes uh, during the game is has got to be on <laughs> it's got to be on everybody's podcast. Uh, listen, let's just kind of jump <laughs> right into it. You didn't receive any scholarship uh, money from an FBS school uh, to play in college. How, how did that affect your confidence in, in, in your abilities to play, you know, big-time football? Um, not a whole lot, you know, because, I mean, I, I knew, I believed in myself the whole time, and I knew that, you know, if given the opportunity, I could always prove myself with the big dogs. And I think, you know, I was just blessed to get the opportunity at the end of this season with a senior bowl to prove it. So it didn't really affect my confidence at all. Hi, Brandon. I was wondering, what are your chances of getting drafted and what teams are looking at you? Very high chance right now. Now, the, 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 what we don't know <laughs> is if it's going to be third, fourth, fifth, second. That's what, you know, we're not sure. But I can, you know, I don't like to step on a limb like that, but I can almost guarantee at this point I'll be drafted somewhere. Whether it's seventh round, I mean, eventually I know I'll be drafted this year. I'm, I'm almost 100% sure of that. Hey, Brandon, what's up? It's Donovan. As I followed you throughout this year, it's pretty obvious that HBCU players have a lot of talent on the football field. But I kind of want to get your thoughts on this. Um, do you think HBCU players have a fair chance of getting drafted? Do you think they're scouted as well as some of the, you know, Power 5 schools are? Oh, not, it's not even close. I mean, you know, it's, it's sad as to say, as an HBCU player, you know, it's kind of a long shot to make it. I mean... You know, I think no matter how good you are, like myself and Danny Johnson from Southern, no matter, even if you go play with the big dogs and show you belong, you're still going to get recruited like you don't belong. Not only versus the FCS versus the big five schools, but also HBCU versus the same FCS schools that are in, you know, your division, like versus your Richmond or your North Dakota State. We're still going to look like we can't play with those guys. So it's kind of at an unfair advantage, but it's just, it comes with the territory. Mm hmm. So, Brandon, I want to piggyback off that. I know you played in the Senior Bowl, and, uh, of course, you're going against some of the best players in the country. Uh, what, what's it like knowing that you're coming into a, a, a game like that with a chip on your shoulder? You're coming from a historically black school, but you're also going up against some of the you know, programs that are on TV like every Saturday or whatnot. Does that give you like a bigger chip on your shoulder? And what type of uh, motivation did you have going into a game like that? Because you, cause you know a lot is riding on that game in terms of you know, draft stock and where you're going and, and all that type of good stuff. Oh, definitely. I mean, I I knew what to expect going in there, and I knew what I could benefit or, you know, what could hurt me from that game. So, I mean, I went in there with the the game set mentality every day, even if it was a practice, just to prove myself and, you know, earn my respect because I can almost guarantee when I came out there, there was a lot of people even playing on the field with me who thought I probably didn't belong or wanted to really see how good I was. So once I got there and actually showed them and I can play with them and, you know, I'm just as good as they are, I think I earned their respect. So my mission going into the game was pretty much to earn respect on all levels. How did you even start in football? When did you decide that, hey, the NFL is where I want to go? They, you know, my family tells me in the early stages, I don't have much of a memory of it, but they say from when I was three or four years old and I was in my aunt's wedding, they said I wouldn't even put on my tuxedo without wearing my football jersey underneath it. So I think 
it's safe to say I knew from early on I wanted to play in the league. I think my dad has a big influence in that, you know, being the football character he was and the coach he was. So, I mean, I just grew up around it, you know, finally found a way to let it out and really show what I can do. Hey, Brent, I kind of want to get to the um, kind of what how, how your process has been ever since your last game at A&T with the different draft processes. I kind of want to go into, like, the interviews. Um, can, if you can, take me through what those interviews with these respective teams are like. You know, what kind of questions are they basically asking you? And do you feel like you get directed different questions than, say, someone who else who attended the PWI? I would definitely say so, yeah, because um... – you know, like, like like I said before, you know, we already don't get respect. So, And for somebody like my size and my ability, you know, just how good of a player they say I am, um, you know, they, they a lot of the teams are trying to figure out how I quite ended up at A&T, you know. So I had to kind of explain I didn't get a lot of offers and kind of went the other route that way because, you know, they automatically assume either I'm A, I'm dumb, B, I messed up, or C, I just, you know, I just wasn't good enough. So, And all of those are not true. So they're really just trying to figure out why I'm there. So a lot of times, I'm getting asked a lot of the basic football questions or just trying to be taught schemes to see how well I retain them, and I always pass the test. So, you know, I think I just was – I think I was tested a little more on the football knowledge and just the intelligence side than, you know, your average PWI guy would be. Hmm. Hey, Justin, I know you've got to run, but I know you want to ask uh, – you have one more thing you want to ask Brandon. Yeah, I actually – I want to ask you a question. It really has nothing to do with – directly to football you know bill mentioned that you have a fiance you proposed you know what type of like calmness and peace has that brought to your life in such a you know a, a hectic time in your life right right now preparing for the nfl draft um probably done a lot more for me than i ever thought it would i mean just knowing that you know you have somebody who's been there from day one who's you know not interested in just me just because i play football or what i can do for her and her family you know and just having somebody at home and just being that close to somebody you can always lean on takes a lot of pressure off of you like i don't it's nice to not have to worry about that side or the social side and just worry about business so she makes the life a lot of easier just with her being there <laughs> make sure she hears this <laughs> <laughs> hey, hey, Justin, I, I, I know you got to run. Brandon, we're going to keep you, but uh, I know the, the great Justin Tinsley has to go. Hey, hey, Justin, man, thank you so much for giving us some time, and, and keep banging it on the, the plug, man. It's really a, it's a great show. Uh, I appreciate that, man. Thank you so much. And, Brandon, man, best of luck to you over these next couple of weeks and moving forward, brother. Yes, I appreciate that, Justin. You already know. Um, has anyone like questioned your proposal? Like since you, um, well, just when you're about to graduate, um, from North Carolina A&T and can you walk us through how you proposed to her? Um, not really any question. You know, I think a lot of my family, I know I've been dating her for a long time. I figured this will be the one, um, a lot of my friends know her and are, you know, really okay with her. You know, she's great around not only my friends and family, but just, you know, she's a general, really nice person too. So, I think nobody's really going to question, you know, why I did it or if this was the one. And, and then, you know, with, with the proposal, I knew I wanted to do it the day of, but it was just kind of a way of figuring out if I wanted to do it before or after the game. And I just ultimately ended up doing it before because, you know, <laughs> I guess it's kind of the same thing saying, you know, what if we lost saying, you know, proposing before, but I just figured it'd be the best time because everybody would be there for one. Uh, number two would be the best way I could surprise on the biggest yell. And then number three, I was the easiest way to set it up with the administrators and, you know, the staff around there. So it just ended up being before the game. Hey, man, he's got to have some good proposals in front of um, right. 5,000 plus people. Everybody. Yeah, exactly. that was, what people don't really understand is, guys, that was the central game. Wasn't the central game, Brandon? Yes, sir. 
Yeah, it was a central game in front of I don't know how many thousands of people out there in that stand. So he, he had some guts to go out there and do that. You got to give us some kudos for that. <laughs> Brandon, you, you had to know she was going to say yeah. yes, though, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, because yeah, it's I was pretty, you know, very solid. It's going to be a yes because if that was a no, I don't know how good that game would have been for me. It could have been good up there. Yeah, clearly, you you want to play whoever drafts you. Do you have any idea where you like to play? uh, A, just professionally, but also just in terms of climate and city and style. You know, quality of life. Um, you know, after seeing things like tax brackets and just, you know, general weather patterns, I guess. Just because how my body works, I'm a, I'm prone to cramping. So, you know, I'll, like you said, I'll play anywhere they pay me. I'll find a way to adjust. But if I have my preference, I would – somewhere like North Carolina would be nice, like maybe the Panthers, so I'm used to the weather, or up north. I would I would love to play up north, actually, because it wouldn't be too hot. You know, I, I feel like I actually really thrive in that climate. I have to spend so much time worrying about my body. Yeah, well, maybe we, Minnesota, how's that for cold? <laughs> It's perfect. It's perfect. They're very interesting. I think they're pretty interesting to me, too. So, you know, you never know. It might be in a perfect uniform. I know some football players that I've talked to um, coming straight out of college, they might not have a plan B or what else they want to do. But I noticed that you studied engineering. So I'm wondering, after the your football career, like, do you plan on pursuing that? I do plan on pursuing that. I've already made a couple connections. I mean, I had an internship with the contractor this past summer. I went to a lot of career fairs and kind of established myself with some employers. So, I mean, I've already kind of laid some steps, you know, foundation in case this plan doesn't go through. But ultimately, right now, I just don't know if I'd rather be doing that right away or if I'd rather still want to be around the game and be coaching somewhere. So I think I'll, you know, figure that out the more I play or once I get closer to that, you know, having to face that bridge. But right now, I mean, I just kind of, you know, it's either one or the other. If you were a recruiter and – there are, there are some kids who are on the fence about, you know, going to mid-level PWIs or larger PWIs, but they were on the fence because they really wanted to, they wanted to hear something that would convince them to go to follow your road into the HBCU. What, what would your pitch be? What would you say? I'd just get them, you know, the old traditional line that somebody gave me that day, you know, if you can play, they'll find you. I mean, you know, talent all over the world, not just at, you know, PWIs or the you know, Power Fives. Because if you think about it, a lot of us were recruited and, our, you know, we're being recruited to play at those PWIs. So by them, the simple fact they're recruiting you, they believe you can play. So it's just up to you to go to any place you can, be it an HBCU or even a, you know, a smaller school to do make the best of opportunity. If you can play, they'll find you. Simple as that. Well, they definitely found you. And, and uh, we, we all really wish you the best, man. You've been uh, not only just a great player, but just a, a great representative of A&T, of HBCUs, really a pleasant person to be around and an engineer on top of that. So just congratulations on, on a great career and good luck. Uh, good luck for the future, man. I think you got a great future ahead of you. So I appreciate that. Thank you. Absolutely. Even though you did go to A&T, I went to Morgan. But that's all right. Hey, our guest has been uh, Brandon Parker, an outstanding uh, tackle from uh, North Carolina A&T, is headed to the National Football League at the very end of this month. Um, we're going to uh, take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about Tiger Woods and the challenge that black athletes still face in getting to the sport. We'll be right back.
if you're just now tuning in, you're listening to HBCU 468. I'm Bill Roden, and I'm on the phone with my co-host, Donovan Dooley from North Carolina A&T University. What's up, y'all? How you doing? And Mania Shabazz from Grambling State University. Hey, everyone that's listening. Uh, Justin Tinsley had to take off, but fellow Hamptonian, that's someone who attends Hampton University, in case you didn't know, Kyla Wright is on the line in his place. Great to have you back, Kyla. Great to be back. Long time no see. Yeah. Right. Woo. <laughs> We're here. Uh, if you watched the 2018 Masters Golf Tournament in Augusta, Georgia earlier this month, you saw the fanfare, the fashion, and the winner, Patrick Reed, in that famous green jacket. And if you were really paying attention, you saw almost no black people competing. Lots of people were excited about Tiger's return to the Masters Tournament. His last appearance in the competition was 13 years ago. Black folks didn't flock to the tournament after he won the tournament for the first time in 1997, but we expected at least to see an influx of black golfers in the historically black colleges. However, senior writer for the undefeated, Michael Fletcher, says in a recent story called Even at HBCUs, Black Golfers Are in the Minority, that this is not the case. He's online, and he's here to explain why. Hey, hey, Michael Fletcher, welcome to the show. Hey, good to be here, Bill. Hey, you know, we all know uh, now that Tiger Woods didn't finish well at the uh, 2018 Masters, uh, but in 1997 he won the Masters. Uh, let me ask you this, Michael. Uh, wh- why do you think more African Americans didn't join the sport after Tiger's run? I mean, remember everybody was predicting that, you know, just like with the Williams sisters in tennis, Tiger was going to be the Pied Piper that led blacks into golf. But it hadn't quite happened that way. Why not? I think a couple of things. I mean, golf is is, is such a tough sport to play and, and tough to kind of replicate certain kind of conditions that you get on the, the high-level golf courses. So in one way, you've got a lot of sort of recreational golfers to go play golf. I live in Baltimore. You can go, you can go to any municipal course in Baltimore, and their brothers and sisters playing golf, you know, all day, every day, as long as the weather's good. But talk about that next level, that high-level golf, you know, getting into competitive golf. That's where you see the steep fall-off because it takes a certain kind of training. It takes um, access to a certain kinds of courses to be able to play, and um, many African-Americans just don't have that. And nor I don't think the interest was there among a lot of people to really pursue the game all the way to its highest level. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, hey, hey, Michael, tell us about Harold Varner III, um, who predates Tiger in the PGA. I mean, do you know what's interesting about Varner is um, he's the only other you know golfer on the PGA Tour with any kind of um, you know African American heritage, right? If you go back to the mid seventies. You know, you had maybe a dozen African Americans on the PGA Tour, and many of these brothers were um, had formerly been caddies, had grown up around golf, had kind of learned. It's kind of analogous, maybe, to basketball, like in the old days when guys came up, you know, in the playgrounds playing, and you sort of had more improvisational kinds of moves. You you had more of a regional game and all of that, and. And these guys had come up kind of, you know, almost teaching themselves golf and, and you know, the Calvin Pete mm. of the world, and they played, you know, on the tour. But now, you know, you have, 
it's kind of the pipeline's a little different. Um, you know, you have these junior circuits that that people play with, and Harold Varner is the only African American on on that top tour. You have you have small money tours that have some African Americans, but Varner's the only other um, person with African American heritage on the tour now, which is which is a shocker. It's a shocker mm-hmm. to me. Wow. Hey, it's Mia. I wanted to ask you, what are the main reasons we don't see black students at HBCUs on golf teams? I noticed it in a lot of other sports, too, like softball and soccer and things of that nature. We don't see a lot of black students at HBCUs on these teams. I know. I mean, and it's one of those, again, one of the stunning things. And that's why I did a story about it. It's, it's disappointing. And I think it has to do some with recruiting budgets. You know, um, the coaches can only get out but so many places, so they end up in the same places everyone else goes. They go to these, the junior circuits of golf, which are predominantly white. And, and, and in some cases, you have some foreign students who play on some of these circuits where it's kind of analogous to make the basketball analogy again to AAU. So you go out there where you, you find kind of the best junior golfers, in, and there's just so few African-Americans on that, on that circuit. There's so few African-Americans in these golf academies that would be maybe analogous to some of these you know, basketball prep schools and stuff like that. So there are thin numbers you know, out there kind of in the obvious places, and you don't have the recruiting budgets, I think, to really find those diamonds in the rough who may be lurking on the municipal courses in Baltimore or New York City or Chicago or something like that. So I think it's a combination of both of those things. And thirdly, you know, some argue, I'm not so sure that this is true or not, but people certainly argue that, you know, Tiger and this whole complicated kind of racial self-identification, his Kaplan Asian thing, in a way, pushed some people away. You know, African-Americans who may have been inspired in the same way they were inspired by the Williams sisters to play what used to be, you know, this country club sport. You know, there's some argument there as well. You know, it's hard to test that theory, but that, that's certainly one that's out there. That's interesting that you mentioned that um, about Tiger and, you know, his hesitation to claim being black and being African-American. Do you think if another golfer of color who was proud of his, you know, ethnicity and being African-American, if he emerged and had Seth kind of like Tiger, do you think that would help benefit the game for minorities? I think it could. It would kind of light that fire. But let me throw a couple things out in Tiger's defense, right? Like, Tiger, I mean, I think brought a lot of people to the game as it is, right? Again, at that recreational level, I did this story. The story I did, I followed the Alabama State University golf team. And every single black member of that team, I asked them, hey, you know, who who do you look up to in golf? And without exception, they said Tiger Woods. That's the guy who was kind of their North Star, if you will. He was the one who, who, who drew them to that game. So there's that, and, and the Tiger Woods Foundation has done wonderful things. I and mean, he spent tens of millions of dollars, you know, on on bolstering um, students' education. He had a, a junior golf team at one point. You know, he's been a big supporter of First Tee, which literally introduced millions of people to golf. You know, so I hesitate to sort of throw it on Tiger, because I think he's done some things. But, but to your point, I think if there was a guy who was out there, say Vaughn really took off and became, like, you know, Masters champ next year or something like that. I, I, I think, again, there's nothing like that kind of that star power, if you will, and someone who's in the limelight saying, hey, I'm black and I'm proud, I, that would bring many more people to the game. Hey, hey, hey Kyle, I want to bring you into this, um, because you've been doing a following Midnight uh, midnight Golf Program in Detroit. Uh, just tell us a little about that Midnight Golf Program, but, and also tying into what Mike was saying do you think that that might be the thing that that gets more young black kids into the sport? 
Yes, yeah, so the Midnight Golf Program, it's a program specifically for high school seniors in the Metro Detroit areas, and it is a very competitive program to be a part of. They only accept roughly 200 students every school year, and um, students end up like dropping off just because it's it's twice a week, three hours each day, and in addition to golfing, you get life lessons and um, different, um, it's like college preparatory, so you um, different colleges come in and speak to the students. They talk to them about um, etiquette and financial literacy and just different skills that you'll need that are essential for life in addition to learning how to golf and, you know, just playing on golf courses and actually being out there on the green. And I definitely think that programs like that, like in cities, especially in urban areas, because they have mentors in the program that are, you know, lawyers and accountants and pilots. So they have have those role models that they wouldn't have on the streets of Detroit most likely because that's just not we don't produce a lot of that because you know I'm from the city so you know I know firsthand so just in having those positive role models and learning a game that you don't play on the streets in Detroit so in having that I've seen a lot of midnight golf students go to play golf on their university campuses and join golf teams or even playing you know just recreationally, just knowing that game. And, you know, like they say, the the biggest business transactions and business deals are made on the golf course. So just in having one of those essential skills, I think that is something that will reel more African-Americans into the sport. Hey, 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 hey Michael, you've, you've heard uh, Kyle talk about midnight golf and, and, and all that. Number one, um, hey, are you a golfer? I'm just curious. But I guess the larger question is, yeah. It basically, does all this boil down to money? I mean, in the sports, in the blood sports like like mm-hmm. football, basketball, where it's kind of easy access for blacks in particular, um, you know, money isn't a big obstacle. Um, but in, in the, and it seems like in every sport that requires money, that's a huge obstacle. And I'm wondering mm-hmm. if that's going to always be true in golf. Or is there any kind of way you could kind of mitigate? The, the impact of money. No, I know what you mean. I mean, to, to your first question, I, I, I'm a golfer only in the broadest definition of that term. You know, it's like <laughs> someone out there hacking away. If you count that as golfing, I, I'm a golfer. But but I think you make a great point about money. But, you know, but I, I want to add an asterisk to that. Because I've observed a lot of you call the blood sports. I remember growing up, I grew up in New York, and, any number of guys I grew up with, guys I knew from the park, we used to go and play basketball. A lot of guys developed their game in the old days in the park. We used to have these summer leagues, you know, literally outdoors, playing on hardtop. Right. College guys come play, some pros. I remember seeing Ricky Mars, Sam Worthen out there. And uh, mm. that doesn't happen as much anymore. You know, we have all this sort of, like, memory of Rucker and stuff like that. And they used to have leagues like that all over New York City. And basketball's yeah. changed now. My son-in-law is a high school basketball coach. Everything's in the gym. Everything's AAU. You know, all the kids are traveling, mm. you know, all over the country now for the summer. So basketball's become expensive. Um, you know, the top players yeah. get sponsored, obviously, with the sneaker companies. And we've, you know, we've read all about how that works and, you know, how the sneaker companies funnel kids to, you know, to, to their colleges and all of that. So basketball, I think, has changed, right? And I think if you have interest, you can find ways to get money into golf. I, I think, you know, clearly it's an obstacle. I, clearly getting on the best courses, which are a huge difference. Like, even in my little hacking game, you go on a real, like a quote-unquote real course, and those greens are really slanted. And, you know, you, 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 you know, in my case, if you happen to pop one up onto the green, you think you're doing well, 
but if you don't hit the center of the green, that thing will roll, you know, and on the municipal courts, it's much more forgiving. So, yeah, money is a factor, but I think also interest is is a big factor. Is that, like, the missing link is, there's a missing link between, like, first tee or midnight golf. There's that second tier of golf that, to get you up to that really competitive level that, that needs to be developed. And once you develop that, you'd be surprised there's money to be had out there. You can, you can squeeze money out of the PGA. You can squeeze money out of some of these, you know, the, the golf uh, manufacturers. Because, hey, they're looking to broaden their market, too. I mean, they, they worry about right. that. It's so interesting to see how interest picks up when Tiger plays, right? You say what you will about Tiger. Exactly. He's the number one magnet, you know, in terms of kind of the casual person being interested in golf, a little bit like Jordan did for basketball. And, um, so, yeah, money is a factor, but I think, you know, if you have interest there, money money will come. I agree, especially because of the uh, the money aspect, because golf is from, like, going on the golf course and getting on the course to paying for clubs. Clubs are extremely expensive, and then if you want to look like Tiger, you know, you got to get all the nice polo shirts and the khakis, and you have to get golf shoes and all that. And so that's something else um that you know, I definitely do credit the Midnight Golf Program for because they have a tremendous amount of funding. They have um, funding from the PGA, and they have PGA professionals who come in and teach the program as well. But, like, the funding that they have from a lot of fundraisers and things that they have, literally everyone in the program gets all of that. They get golf clubs. They get golf paraphernalia. They get all that, and they don't pay for anything. So to put golf on the mat, like, we need more than just the poster child, if you will, who is Tiger Woods. Uh, as expensive as football can be, I think, you know, back in the day, you know, if you were in a public high school and you went for the team and made it, they, they gave you the equipment. And same thing with basketball. They gave you the equipment. Uh, if you were in band, you know, I grew up in Chicago, and a lot of great musicians came through the pu- public high school because, you know, they gave you the instruments. And it seems to me that that almost, for a lot of young African Americans in the inner city where money is an issue. If public education supplied things like, you know, golf club or instruments, because the same thing is happening in the music too, you know, Mike, that, you know, when they're taking the music out and you got to pay for music. Again, it kind of gets back to, to money. Like if the large number of people at public high schools could get access to instruments, clubs, tennis rackets, uh, you know. I mean, so much of it, like you said, comes back to resources. And, you know, and there's some there, but the problem is, like, they're kind of catch as catch can. You know, just the other day I was talking to a friend of mine who's a tennis coach at a public high school in uh, Baltimore, and I was, you know, asking him about, the, you know, about his team and how good they are. And he says we have a lot of enthusiasm but not a lot of skill. But, you know, he's he has some rackets, he has some balls, you know, but it's, you know, it's kind of his scratching to pull this stuff together. There's a, there's a golf team at that right. school. But, but it's really small, and I'm not sure what equipment they have. But it's, you know, it's not like when you come out for the basketball team, you have like, you know, 40 guys coming out to, you know, try to make this team, or 40 women trying to make this team. You know, it's like you're begging kids, hey, try golf. You know, try to say, hey, we right. have some clubs somewhere in here. You know, then we can go out to the court, right. or we can go out to the baseball field, try to figure out how to hit it, you know, that kind of stuff. So it's not, I mean, the resources are there, but not, you know, not in abundance, clearly. And it, and it really depends on the ingenuity of the coach in many cases, you know, you know how far they can take that. And so that, that's part of it. But, again, it comes back to interest as well. You need, like, a good introduction to the sport. And I, you know, I sometimes question just to put a contrary note in here, you know, and I love what I hear about midnight golf. It reminds me of a program 
I brought my kids to in, in Baltimore many years ago when they were young, and I, I took them to the golf course. You know, I forget what they called the program, but it was an introduction to golf. But the thing that, as a parent, I, I found, like, you know, found, I don't know, it was exhausting, was they try to piggyback so much on top of golf. You know, they want the kids, you know, they want to teach them about, you know, about being good students. You want to teach them about this, teach them about yeah. that, which is all valuable. But in some ways, my mind was like, hey, let them hit the golf ball. You know, just yeah. let them hit the golf ball. <laughs> you know, and let them get into golf, you know, and and, right, and a lot of these right, things will take right. care of themselves, you know what I mean? And uh, exactly. I, mean, I think sometimes we, it's almost like we're trying to do too much. Yeah, you know, I mean, and I know, I know, Mike, you got to go. Um, but I think that, to me, this also ties into just one more devastating impact of integration. Uh, because if you look at our history, you, some of the greatest golfers came out of uh, these black golf circuits, the black golf circuits. Uh, Althea Gibson uh, came out of a black golf circuit. And there was just like the Negro League baseball and, and tennis. We had some of the great tennis players came out of these great tennis circuits, you know. Uh, so the, the, the guy who got the first patent on a golf tee was an African-American. Uh, you know, he was part of the, I think he was the first uh, class of uh, Harvard, uh, the first class of Harvard, uh, the Harvard Dental School. So, you know, we've been playing golf and tennis for a long time. We've had our own clubs. We've had our own courses. We've had our own circuits. It's not like we don't play or don't have a long history of the sport. Again, it's sort of, you know, having the great courses and, and also having to deal with discrimination and not being able to play. So, you know, I think we've talked about a lot, either, you know, with Kyle's story or Mike, your story, uh, but it kind of boils down to money and access and, and racism. <laughs> you know, it's kind of like the, the same formula, you know, the same sort of culprits. On a professional level, do you think Tiger's niece, Cheyenne Woods, will become a golf star? I mean, could be, right? Who, who's to say? We have to wait and see. She certainly has the charisma and, and all of that. That If she's really mm-hmm. successful, I think people will gravitate to her, and it'll help knock down barriers. And, and, and Bill, and to your point, you're absolutely right. But the thing is that when you look back at the guys who were on the circuit, like you're talking about PGA, like in the 70s, those guys, they went through the fires of racism. And, you know, and there were uh, about a dozen of them out there on the PGA Tour anyway, right? And now we have right. Honor and, and Tiger, right? And whatever we can say, and racism, you, I'm no fool, it's, it exists. But, you know, it's not what it was, right? But So there's something else, too, that we have to try to figure out. And I think some of it is just that cool factor, some of it's interest. It's clearly access. I mean, and not just right. sort of like rudimentary access, like real access, you know, and that that's right. the... I think that's the bridge we have to cross. Hey, 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 Mike, thank you so much for being on the show, man. Uh, uh, great story, and, um, you know, just look forward to more. Oh, thank you so much, Bill, man. It's my pleasure. That's all the time we have for the show today. But before we close out, I just want to know from each of you, when was the first time you were introduced to golf? Well, for me, um, mini golf, I was about seven years old um, when I started playing <laughs> on those courses. Um, but to, to honestly with you, I haven't played any real um, type of golf. I've never been on a golf course, never sold a club on a real golf course. So mini golf, uh, seven years old. I'm going to go with that. Um, for me, I would say it was pretty early. Like Donovan said, it was definitely mini golf. Um, and I would just play at the resorts when I would go with my mother 
But um, one thing that stuck out to me when I went to the uh, real golf course, they told me to turn around because I didn't have on the proper attire. And I thought I've been golfing for forever and I didn't even know. But um, yeah, so that was interesting. Um, my dad golfed here and there when I was younger. So I would see my dad's like golf clubs and stuff laying around the house. And then like they just said mini golf. But my first time stepping onto an actual course, I was in, I believe, the eighth or ninth grade. Huh. Uh, my first experience when I was at Morgan, actually, and we I remember being on the football field and what, two of the coaches, Coach Taylor and Coach Thomas, would be at the top of the stadium golfing and hitting golf balls. And, and I'd say, wow, what are these guys doing? Yeah. And there actually was, they offered golf as a course at Morgan, but I kind of thought, ah, you know, sort of what Kyle was saying, ah, you know, and now I wish, darn. I wish I wish I would have been doing that instead of getting my head knocked out in football, you know, because it's, it's it's a great social sport. And like you say, Kyla, who knows what deals I could have been making thirty years ago? Maybe I could have owned the station. So, right. <laughs> anyway, that's all the time we have for today. If there's anything you'd like us to cover, or if you just like to leave a comment, tweet us at the undefeated hashtag Rodenfellows. You can contact us directly. I'm at W.C. Roden. I'm at Donna Bendula. I'm at underscore Minnie and Shabazz. And I'm at Dream Always with three underscores at the end. listening to HBCU 468, the Roden Fellows Podcast. This show is produced by Aaron Matthewson, and special thanks to Tarika Foster-Brasby and Kyrie Williams. Get all of your HBCU 468 podcasts, as well as The Plug, The Right Time with Bomani Jones and Morning Roast by subscribing to The Undefeated on the Listen tab of the ESPN app. Join us next week for another HBCU podcast, and don't forget to make The Undefeated your go-to site for a soulful look at sports and entertainment. Have a great week, everyone.